Welcome to Music History Monday for January 4th, 2021. I'm Bob Greenberg, and the title for today's podcast is A Rockin' Day. If you haven't already, please consider joining me on my subscription site at patreon.com slash robertgreenbergmusic, where I blog, vlog, podcast, pontificate, review, and bloviate four to six times a week. What July 4th is for Americans, what Bastille Day on July 14th is for the French, what St. Patrick's Day on March 17th is for the Irish, and what the Black-Necked Crane Festival on November 11th is for the Bhutanese, so January 4th is for fans of rock and roll, a day when so much stuff happened as to enshrine it as a major rock and roll holiday. What, pray tell, happened on this day? Thank you for asking. Elvis Presley and Sam Phillips. It was on January 4, 1954, 67 years ago today, that Elvis Presley, four days short of his 20th birthday on January 8th, came to the attention of the record producer and founder of Sun Records, Sam Phillips, 1923 to 2003. It was the singular event that vaulted Elvis to stardom. Here's what happened. On this day in 1954, Elvis made his second visit to the studios of the Memphis Recording Studio, which shared an office with Sun Records. On his first visit, six months before, on January 18, 1953, Presley had recorded two songs at his expense on a two-sided 10-inch acetate disc, claiming that the recording was a gift for his mother. That session cost Elvis the king's ransom amount of $3.25. The receptionist, Marion Keisker, recalled talking to Elvis, quote, I said, what kind of singer are you? He said, I sing all kinds. I said, who do you sound like? He said, I don't sound like nobody, unquote. A gift for his mother? Nah. The truth is, Elvis wanted to be discovered. Discovered? He was not. So he went back to the Memphis recording studio on January 4, 1954, and made another two-sided acetate, recording the songs Casual Love Affair and I'll Never Stand in Your Way. This time around, Sam Phillips heard what was going on in the studio and asked the receptionist, Marion Keisker, to get Elvis's phone number. Little did Presley know that he had indeed just been discovered. That discovery took some time to play out. In the meantime, the now 20-year-old Elvis auditioned for a vocal quartet called the Songfellows. He failed the audition, later telling his father that, quote, they told me I couldn't sing, unquote. Then the rockabilly singer and band leader Eddie Bond, 1933-2013, to 2013, had an opening for a vocalist in his band. 
Elvis auditioned and was told by Bond to stick to truck driving, quote, because you're never going to make it as a singer, unquote. Back to Sam Phillips. Rhythm and blues, as performed by black musicians and recorded on these newfangled 45 RPM discs, was becoming increasingly popular with white American teenagers. Phillips was constantly on the lookout for a white R&B singer with the black sound, someone who could widen the audience for R&B, for rhythm and blues, which soon enough would come to be called rock and roll. Marion Keisker recalled, quote, over and over I remember Sam saying, if I could find a white man who had the Negro sound and the Negro feel, I could make a billion dollars, unquote. And then Phillips thought of that Presley guy. He brought Elvis back to Sun Records studio on July 5th, 1954. Deep into that session, almost on a lark, Elvis performed slash recorded Arthur Crudup's 1946 blues song, That's All Right. Bingo. That was the sound that Phillips was looking for. And just like that, the Elvis revolution was poised to begin. Their first number one. On July 6, 1961, a brand new music periodical hit the newsstands in Liverpool, England. Called Mercy Beat, the avowed mission of the paper was to feature news about the local bands there in Liverpool and established bands that came to Liverpool to perform. The former local bands might not sound like a big deal, but in fact, the Merseyside area of Liverpool had some 500 different bands, of which some 350 were regularly gigging. That, my friends, is a lot of bands. On this date in 1962, 59 years ago today, the 13th issue of Mercy Beat published its first Liverpool band popularity poll. Coming in at number one was The Beatles, still with Pete Best on drums. Ringo Starr would replace him only later that year. It was the band's first such number one. For our information, coming in second was Jerry and the Pacemakers. Pacemaker as in taking the lead or setting standards of achievement for others and not as in artificial cardiac pacemaker for regulating the heart. A moment of silence, please, for the band's frontman, Jerry Marsden, who died yesterday on January 3rd, 2021, age 78. Light My Fire. On January 4th, 1967, 54 years ago today, the Doors released their eponymous, meaning self-titled, first album, The Doors. Recorded between August 24th and 31st, 1966, at Sunset Sound Recording Studios at 6650 Sunset Boulevard, Hollywood, California, the album went on to become one of the best-selling and most influential rock and roll albums of all time. 
The album contains what was The Doors' breakout hit, Robbie Krieger's Light My Fire, along with Break On Through to the Other Side and The End. Released on the Elektra label, The Doors scaled the charts only to become stuck at number two, directly behind the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Based on its cultural, artistic, and historical significance, The Doors was selected by the Library of Congress for inclusion in its National Recording Registry in 2015. How correct can you get? This entry is in parentheses because I have not been able to substantiate it. Still, it's worth mentioning because it's so, so Southern California. According to an ordinarily reliable source, thisdayinmusic.com, on January 4th, 1968, the University of California, Los Angeles, UCLA, quote, announced that students taking music degrees would have to study the music of the Rolling Stones, saying they had made such an important contribution to modern music, unquote. Given that UCLA can now boast of having the UCLA Herb Alpert School of Music, we can only wonder if the School of Music, as distinct from the Department of Music, requires that students taking degrees study the music of Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass. Altogether, almost for the last time. On January 4, 1970, 51 years ago today, the Beatles, without John Lennon, who had left the group in September of 1969 and was at the time cooling his heels with Yoko Ono at his estate called Tittenhurst Park in Berkshire, re-recorded the vocals and added a new guitar solo to Paul McCartney's song, Let It Be. The recording session, held at Studio Two of EMI Studios in London, was the final studio session held by the Beatles. For our information, the last time all four of the Beatles appeared together in a studio was on August 20th, 1969. And he never even passed a driving test. A tragic rock and roll event also took place on January 4th, 1970, when Keith Moon, 1946 to 1978, the drummer for The Who, ran over and killed his friend, bodyguard and chauffeur, Cornelius Neil Boland. Moon, appropriately nicknamed Moon the Loon, was the poster child for rock and roll bad boys, a talented, self-destructive degenerate who took too many drugs, drank too much alcohol, destroyed instruments on stage, routinely blew up toilets with dynamite as a hobby, <laughs> no joke, trashed hotel rooms, and died of an overdose at the age of 32. For all his unrepented bad boy behavior, Moon, according to his friends, went to his grave haunted by the events of January 4th, 1970. Here's what happened. On that day, 51 years ago today, Moon, along with his wife Kim McGloggan, 
and several friends attended the opening of a pub called the Red Lion in Hatfield, Hertfordshire, which was owned by the son of one of his neighbors. Moon arrived in his chauffeur-driven Bentley, and he played the ostentatious rock star in the pub, throwing around his money and drinking expensive brandy. A group of working-class skinheads at the pub took offense to Moon's car, his attitude, his wealth, and his hoity-toity choice of beverage. What? A pint of beer ain't good enough for you? Things began to get ugly with the skinheads, and Moon's party decided to vamoose pronto. They got into the Bentley, which was immediately surrounded by the skinheads, preventing it from leaving. They began rocking the car and throwing coins and rocks at it. Moon's chauffeur, bodyguard, and friend, Neil Boland, got out of the car and confronted the skinheads directly in front of the car. He was apparently knocked down by the skinheads because Moon, who had never passed a driving test and was drunk off his gourd, slipped behind the wheel and drove forward, forgetting entirely that Boland had been standing in front of the car. Poor Neil Boland ended up underneath the car and was dragged 100 yards down the road before anyone realized that something was terribly amiss. Moon stopped the car, reached underneath for Boland and, quote, pulled out brains, unquote, as Neil Boland's head had been turned to mush. Moon was initially charged with killing Boland, as well as driving drunk and driving without a license or, for that matter, insurance. Six weeks later, he was cleared of Boland's death, which was ruled accidental, though he still had to answer for the driving charges for which he eventually pled guilty. According to Moon's on-again, off-again girlfriend, the groupie Pamela DeBars, Moon's nightmares over the incident routinely woke them both, after which he'd say that, quote, he had no right to be alive, unquote. How much puke would an up-chuck chuck if an up-chuck could chuck puke? Pardon. Keith Moon might have been a naughty, naughty boy, but he had nothing on the Sex Pistols, an English punk rock band that managed to stay in business for all of two and a half years between 1975 and 1978. In a band filled with unredeemable delinquents, one truly stands out. John Simon Ritchie, who went by the stage name of Sid Vicious, 1957 to 1979. He slash it will be the subject of Music History Monday on this coming February 1st. The Sex Pistols, God bless them, disgusted everybody. The English Conservative Party politician Bernard Brooke Partridge spoke for many, if not most, when he said in an interview apropos of punk bands, quote, Most of these groups would be vastly improved by sudden death. The worst of the punk rock groups, I suppose, currently are the Sex Pistols. They are unbelievably nauseating. They are the antithesis of humankind. I would like to see someone dig a very, very large, exceedingly deep hole and drop the whole bloody lot down it." Unquote. 
Perhaps the right honorable gentleman was reacting to an incident that had occurred early in the morning of January 4, 1977, 44 years ago today. It was then that the Sex Pistols boarded a plane at London's Heathrow Airport to Amsterdam Airport Schiphol in order to play three concerts in the Netherlands. A few hours after the flight departed, the London Evening News reported that the band, hung over from the previous night's partying, shocked and disgusted fellow travelers and airport personnel when they, quote, vomited and spat their way, unquote, to their flight. Denials were made, but the damage was done, and EMI canceled the band's recording contract. According to the English journalist Matthew Worley, the Pistols had, quote, stoked a moral panic, precipitating the cancellation of gigs, the band's expulsion from their EMI record deal, and lurid tabloid tales of punk's shock cult, unquote. Under the heading of, does anyone really care? On January 4th, 2001, 20 years ago today, Courtney Love, born 1964, filed a civil lawsuit in the Santa Monica West District Branch of Los Angeles Superior Court against Leslie Barber, the ex-wife of her former boyfriend, a record executive named Jim Barber. According to Ms. Love, Ms. Barber blamed her for the breakup of her marriage and was engaged in a reign of terror against Love as well as her family and friends. The suit charged that over the course of 20 months, Barber had engaged in, quote, stalking, prank phone calls, and the making of terroristic threats, of verbally threatening to burn down Love's house and to plant cocaine, unquote, in Love's car. But the kicker presumably occurred on June 4th, 2000, when Barber, attempting to run Love down, allegedly ran over Love's foot with her Volvo. Because of the subsequent injury to her foot, quote, Love claims that she was not able to complete training required for a lead role in John Carpenter's sci-fi horror film, Ghost of Mars, and subsequently will not appear in the film or receive the $1.5 million fee, unquote. In fact, other sources claim that her acting fee was between $350,000 and $500,000, and the word on the street was that Love's injury was actually a result of her training for the film. Whatever. We read that the suit was settled out of court, the terms undisclosed. The best of intentions. Finally an unfortunate tale of real estate woe. On January 4th, 2006, 15 years ago today, the Bee Gees singer Barry Gibb purchased the palatial, light-filled, 13,880-square-foot lakeside house that Johnny Cash had shared with his wife, June Carter Cash. Cash lived in the house for 35 years, from 1968 until his death in 2003. 
located in Hendersonville, Tennessee, some 20 miles northeast of Nashville. The house went on the market in June 2005 with an asking price of $2.9 million. Barry Gibb was no doubt inspired by the history of the house. Cash wrote many of his greatest songs there. It was where he and June entertained presidents and fellow music business royalty. Cash's next-door neighbor and son-in-law, the country and bluegrass singer Marty Stewart, observed, quote, So many prominent things and prominent people in American history took place in that house. Everyone from Billy Graham to Bob Dylan went into that house, unquote. After purchasing the house 15 years ago today, Barry Gibb embarked on a renovation. As part of that renovation, a highly flammable preservative was applied to the wood on both the exterior and interior of the house. Oops, bad idea. No one knows exactly how the fire started at 1.40 p.m. on April 10, 2007, but it spread with stunning speed, thanks in no small part to that recently applied preservative. While firefighters arrived within five minutes, it was already too late. The house was completely engulfed in flames. By the time the fire burned itself out a few hours later, nothing was left but the stone walls and chimneys. The 4.5-acre lakefront property bearing the remnants of the house remained abandoned for 13 years. On January 7, 2020, the property was purchased for $3.2 million by a local hedge fund manager named Kristen Blackman and his wife, Tina. The Blackmans, cognizant of the historic nature of the site, planned to build a home there, says Kristen Blackman, Quote, it's such a majestic piece of property. My wife and I are honored to own it, unquote. And so they should be. Thank you. To sample and download one or all of my many courses on subjects musical produced by The Great Courses slash The Teaching Company, please visit my website at robertgreenbergmusic.com.